You're here with 3CR Breakfast. During the year, we spoke to so many incredible people, and today we're bringing you some of our favorite conversations, laughs, and tunes. So stay tuned to 3CR 855 AM or stream it at 3cr.org.au via the community radio app or 3CR Digital. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast Summer Programming on 3CR Community Radio. Today's show features a selection of interviews across 2022 covering labor issues and workers' rights. Stay tuned to 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, and stream at 3cr.org.au or via the Community Radio app. We are about to hear from Ella with Inez. Thanks, Priya. So Ella is a digital and communications organizer at the Migrant Workers Centre, and she's previously worked as a community organizer, student union representative, and is also a former ASU workplace delegate. And she joins us today to speak about the importance of the Migrant Workers 2022 survey and how this impacts their work and policy recommendations. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Ella. Thank you for having me. No, of course. Well, um, I think I just want to start off with what the Migrant Workers Centre does, because I know that it empowers workers in Victoria to a whole range of things, to understand their rights, how to enforce them in the workplace, and connect them with other migrant workers. Uh, So the new Migrant Workers Centre survey for 2022 will make important policy recommendations based on the answers to this survey. Could you speak a little bit about this, what this survey is about and why it's so important? Yeah, of course. So I think the key thing is there isn't a lot of data out there about the experiences of migrant workers and especially those on temporary visas. Um, and often when there is research, it's really centred around the economy, so unemployment levels, um, skill shortages. Uh, but data and info about the experiences of workers themselves is quite scarce, so... I guess it's a missing piece that this, uh, this survey is aiming to address. This is also the second year that we've held this survey. So um, while some questions are different, while we're taking a deeper look into some issues, uh, there are also other questions that we ask again. So, for example, um, looking at familiarity with industrial terms such as industry awards and penalty rates. Um, and the purpose of that really also is to get a snapshot of how or if things have changed over time, um, you know, if there is greater awareness um, or information and resources available to migrant workers uh, about their workplace rights. So having this evidence to back up our broader campaigns around pathways for permanent visas, um, you know, workplace rights for workers, uh, ending you know, temporary protection visas and introducing permanent protection for people seeking asylum, this is all really crucial for that kind of work that we're doing. Yeah, amazing. Um, I know that the work that you did with the Lives in Limbo report, which was also last year, um, which is an online survey and some in-depth interviews on migrant workers' experiences in Australia. Um, and we did discuss it, I think, last uh, previously on 3CR. Uh, could you speak about the impact on the Lives in Limbo report? Because it really highlighted a lot of amazing, um, important findings. Yeah, definitely. So the report um, had some huge findings. Uh, some key ones, you know, are that 
Uh, we found 65% of temporary visa holders who responded to our survey had experienced wage theft, which is you know, far greater than the average population numbers. We also found one in four had experienced other forms of labour exploitation, um, so things you know, like being forced to work overtime or work without penalty rates. Um, and I think the most crucial thing was looking at the links between employee sponsorship and exploitation, as well as the links between being on a temporary short-term visa and exploitation. So, uh, as I just you know mentioned, a lot of the stats um, and the research around migrant workers is centred around the economy, skill shortages, and I think the impact of this Lives and Limbo report really has been uh, a shift towards looking at people and the families and you know, the centre of all of this. Um, and of course, you know, even just recently, uh, yesterday, I think we've seen Anthony Albanese talk about committing to permanent migration pathways. Um, and I think we've definitely seen you know, more discussion in the media and the news about what it's like, you know, living in the middle being on a temporary visa permanently. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important um, for a lot of people living in so-called Australia to recognise that temporary visa holders are like the backbone of a lot of our economies, and uh, they need, they deserve rights just as much as anybody else. And I think also following on from this and, you know, what is being discussed in the media recently, what did the Lives in Limbo report highlight as, like, key supports that are really needed for migrant workers and what you see in your work every day? Yeah, so when we talk about support, often um, there's focus on, I guess, you know, the day-to-day things. So often a lot of workers come to us because there's wage theft issues, um, which we can help people, you know, negotiate with their employer to address. Um, you know, there's workplace injury, that kind of thing, um, as well as providing support in language, you know, ensuring there's translated resources out there. But I think what Lives in Limbo, you know, really touched on is that there aren't sort of short-term day-to-day fixes to these problems. You know, it can't be resolved just on the individual level. And actually, the reason why there's so much wage theft is because there's huge issues with our, you know, migration and temporary visa system. So the recommendations the report made really touch on big structural changes. So that means things like introducing more permanent visas and more pathways to permanent visas. Um, And I think a really key part of the report also highlighted how over the last decade or couple of decades, while the number of uh, temporary short-term visas has inc- increased dramatically. The number of permanent visas issued hasn't really changed at all. So it's really about addressing that imbalance in the system, as well as looking at things like faster visa processing, um, you know, protecting migrant workers who are whistleblowers, so there's no visa penalties. Um, you know, if they expose an employer who's underpaying them, but also sponsoring their visa to stay in the country. Um, and also, yeah, just looking at changing the system, you know, around employer versus perhaps, you know, a state-sponsored visa system. And, of course, without these biggest structural changes, we can continue to tackle, you know, things like wage theft on a case-by-case basis. Um, but it's really about supporting change to the system itself rather than perhaps, you know, individual workers um, providing in-language support, which, of course, is important, but doesn't touch on the heart of the issue. Yeah, absolutely. I think we saw a really significant policy failures um, and ongoing (laughs) impacts of COVID-19 on international students and migrant workers, often both, um, who are often left to pick up the pieces of, like, you know, universities abandoning them, employers exploiting them, and really hazardous working conditions. And, you know, COVID is obviously ongoing. Uh, Could you speak to the impact that you've seen COVID-19 have on migrant workers and how migrant workers has been able to 
centre, sorry, has been able to support them, either individually or systemically? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, we saw a lot of, uh, I guess, reports about, you know, how there's been a change in migration numbers, um, you know, I guess questions around whether there's skills shortages in certain industries, and we saw, you know, international students having the work hour limit extended. Um, so, you know, these are all things that, for better or for worse, impact how, you know, migrants on temporary visas work and live in the country day to day. But often I think the focus has too much um, been on those big picture statistics or number of people coming in and out and hasn't actually acknowledged that the vast majority of migrant workers, um, or a large portion at least, um, you know, are, are already in the country, have already stayed in Australia, um, and the people who perhaps were most affected weren't necessarily just people who, um, you know, couldn't come and go, but also people who stayed in the community for the last few years without any support, um, you know, who had really prohibitive restrictions on where they were allowed to live or what kind of jobs they were able to do, um, often to fulfil visa requirements. Um, and I think the, you know, the lives and the stories of those workers haven't been talked about enough. So, you know, we saw a lot of community support um, uh, emerge throughout the pandemic. Um, but I, one of the key campaigns, for instance, that we're supporting right now, again, is for broader change to the visa system. So... One group we've been working closely with at the moment um, are 887 uh, visa applicants. So many of these people have you know, been in Australia for quite a number of years waiting uh, for this permanent visa to come through uh, on a temporary visa. Um, processing times has meant that people are forced to live in regional areas, often with not that much support. So when we talk about the impacts of COVID-19, um, you know, we're looking at the ways that we've been able to help workers Throughout that really tough time, um, you know, if there's been wage theft, if people have been unfairly dismissed, but it's also looking at the sort of injustices that this pandemic has revealed about the you know, migration system itself um, and campaigns to change that. Yeah, I think, you know, recognising that the people that have stayed and maybe don't have the luxury of going elsewhere <laughs> um, or even, uh, you know, uh, restricted by policy or, or visa or a whole, whole range of issues, um, being able to support them like on an ongoing basis is definitely really important, as you've highlighted. Um, just before we go, could you maybe speak on how people can actually access and complete the survey and also reach out if they do need support as a migrant worker? Yeah, absolutely. It's probably the most important part. So the survey is available um, at migrantworkers.org.au forward slash survey underscore 2022. Um, it's also yep. just available from the front page of our website um, and linked on all our social medias more recently. So our handle is at MWCVIC. Um, and we'll also be releasing it in further languages soon. So keep an eye out. Um, right now it's just the English version that's out, but there'll be more languages coming uh, and, of course, if anyone needs assistance with a workplace issue, um, at the website URL I just mentioned, we have translated resources about um, you know, wages, how to handle workplace bullying, um, all sorts of issues, and you can also make confidential and free appointments for advice. Um, and we can also provide that service in about a dozen or so languages um, or facilitate interpreters. So, yeah, definitely very easy to uh, get help if you'd like to get in touch. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us here today. Ella, was there anything else that you wanted to leave us with? No, thank you so much for having me. No worries. Thank you so much. Have you have a good day.
And that was Inez interviewing Ella, who's the digital and communications organizer at the Migrant Workers Center. And she has previously worked as a community organizer, student union rep, and is also a former ASU workplace delegate. And Ella joined us today to speak about the importance of the Migrant Workers 2022 survey and how this impacts their work and policy recommendations. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast Summer Programming. Over summer, we'll be joining you with Radical Radio, including highlights from our news coverage across all of our breakfast shows. For summer grid details, you can head to 3cr.org.au forward slash summer specials. And you can also listen back to our podcast by heading to 3cr.org.au forward slash breakfast. lasting delusion about children trapped in tunnels. That's how we got Aussie Q, it seems. And now everything else, I mean, now it's just a six-month pipeline from that to Australians who who, who live in this alternate uh, American fantasy land where they post about Donald Trump all the time. So its ability to, via Save the Children stuff, to get a whole range of different political persuasions in is what I found fascinating, you know. I talk a lot in the Aussie Q videos about how your auntie, she might not be that far right wing now but she might be quite left she might just be a spiritual hippie type but there's this broad appeal to things like save the children and great awakenings there's almost a hippie like quality to it particularly when you tone down the whole MAGA element of, of traditional Q and it's getting people in there but Q is not just a conspiracy theory is it? It is this conspiracy theory that is meant to drag you right after a few months so your auntie's going to be talking about make Australia great again in six months if she isn't right now You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. I'm very excited now to be talking to Madeline Thornton-Smith, who has a strong interest in labour issues, particularly in relation to the visual arts and ceramics industry. She has become passionate about the working rights of artists and art workers since doing an internship with the Victorian Trades Hall Council and the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, participating in discussions with the Melbourne-based Artists' Union Research Group and after experiencing years of insecure and unsafe working conditions as a practising artist, technician and tutor alongside her art worker comrades. Today, Madeline joins us to discuss her work on art and labour, the renewed national cultural policy and unionising in the creative sector. Hi, Madeline. How are you going? Thanks. Welcome. So I wanted to start by asking why you got involved with art and labour issues. I understand that your personal experience in the arts prompted your decision to undertake an internship with the Trades Hall uh, council, sorry, Victorian Trades Hall Council. Yeah. Could you tell us a bit more about your time as an artist and worker and what insights you gained from your internship? Um, I suppose it started off. Um, oh, sorry, I can hear myself speaking back. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. We've had that issue a bit. It's quite distracting, but we can actually yeah. hear you perfectly from the okay, studio. Good. Yeah. All right, all right, all good. Um, yeah, I started off, uh, essentially I was in a job in council, um, working in a local council and I have studied art and everything and I was really excited to get a job um, teaching either visual arts or ceramics. 
Um, and I'd had in the past just traditional jobs, um, you know, on the payroll as a casual in other industries. Um, uh, yeah, I like went for my interview and everything, and I got the job. Um, and then I was asked to get an ABN, um, which I thought was a really strange thing, as I thought I was going for a job. Um, and then I was asked to mm-hmm. get um, public liability insurance. Um, but then, yeah, I was like, well, this is your pay rate. Um, I think in accounts I was getting super, but there was a bit of a catch-22 in that I was earning less than $450 mm. um, in the pay period, so I usually didn't get super anyway. Um, anyway, so I found out sort of through a bit of research that that was a phenomenon called sham contracting, and it's really common in the visual arts. Um, yeah, so basically... It's a way that employers, like, they think they can get away with paying no super. Technically, even contractors must get super. And also, like, not paying kind of recommended pay rates and, and so on. Um, yeah, and anyway, that radicalized me. And then I went and did an internship um, through Trades Hall um, and learned a little bit more about organizing and awards and EBAs and, and workers' rights generally. Um, and also, I started, uh, yeah talking with this working group called the Artists' Union, um, who are other, yeah, other arts workers and people interested in these issues. And we're not officially a union, but we're more of a discussion group on these issues. Mm, it's great to hear that that's happening. Um, really, I only recently recognised the impact that the lack of union representation has for, you know, the everyday artist and arts worker. And initially, I thought NAVA or the National Association for the Visual Arts, was an adequate alternative for a union. But there are some crucial differences. Namely, unions have the power to represent employees during workplace disputes, as well as the power to negotiate or bargain with employers. NAVA does some great work in providing guidelines, but cannot provide the grassroots advocacy that a union might. Do you think a union would benefit artists and art workers? And what impact could unionisation have on the everyday artist or art worker? Yeah, I've been thinking about this issue a lot um, and having a bit to do with NAVA because they do have a really great code of conduct and in the code of conduct they have um, what theoretically both artists and art workers should be paid. So this includes if you're an artist having a group or a solo exhibition, like the artist fee you should be paid. Um, and also I do believe they have like teaching rates in there, though I don't know if they're um, specific to industries, for instance, I'm in ceramics. Um, but yeah, they're sort of, they do a lot of advocacy, as do a lot of the associations, but they also stand for the sector generally, which means they often represent the galleries or the employers as well. So, whereas unions represent kind of the worker at the bottom. So, I know from um, being in a union for my council job, I have felt much more confident in asking for better conditions, asking um, for better safety, um, for better pay. You sort of feel like you, it's like insurance, like you have kind of protection. Um, and you can come together if there's other people in the union, you can come together to ask for, yeah, ask for improvements. Um, yeah, I definitely think the problem is that um, 
we have all sorts of unions that can cover patches of the visual arts. So, like, the Australian Services Union can help you if you're, a, say, a council worker um, working in council gallery or community centre. It's like the CPSU if you're at um, the NGV, NTEU, which is the tertiary union if you're, say, a university worker and so on. Um, I think the Independent Education Union I talked to um, when I recently wrote an article on sham contracting and they said um, they would have cover people in private studios, but a lot of people don't know that. But yeah, there's still all these gaps. So I think mm. um, just the impact it would have is it, we all have these concerns as, as artists and artworkers. We could all come together, like unionisation is about coming together to demand better. Um, and there are new unions that have formed, like I just went to a conference in RAFWU, which is the new retail union that is not officially endorsed by the Australian Council um, of Trade Unions. They've just formed. They've just been like the SDA, which is the um, the alternate retail union. They're like, they're not doing enough. They're representing more the interests of employers rather than workers. Let's just form a new union. So yeah. like it is possible. That <laughs> is definitely what I'm hoping for. And when I was preparing for this interview, I was reflecting on how I would need to be a member of at least three different unions and then I still wouldn't be covered with the, yeah. all the different jobs that I'm currently employed under just to support myself as an artist. So, yeah, yeah. we we really need to unite, I think, and have something yeah. that covers us a bit more adequately. Um, mm -hmm. In 2013, the National Cultural Policy Creative Australia was launched by the Gillard government in an effort to support the cultural and creative sectors. The five pillars or goals that informed the previous policy will remain as the building blocks for the renewed 2022 iteration. These five pillars include recognising and respecting the crucial place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander stories at the centre of arts and culture, ensuring that government support reflects the diversity of Australia, supporting the artist as worker and celebrating their role as the creators of culture, providing support across the spectrum of institutions which sustain our arts and culture, and ensuring our stories reach the right people at home and abroad. So this new national cultural policy is currently in its consultation phase and is open for submission by artists, arts workers, creative organisations, government bodies and anyone involved in the art, culture and entertainment sector. Could you discuss your recent contribution to the Artistic Courage Symposium and just speak to the importance of speaking out on these issues as an artist? Yeah, so um, I recently prepared a talk for this um, symposium that was run, um, I think it was jointly by NAVA and RMIT. Um, I specifically talked about yeah, some of the things I've been talking about today, I guess, like artists organising, like the possibility of us organising together um, and trade unions. And I went through, like, yeah, all the trade unions where there's some coverage but not all. Um, and I also talked about the issue of class in the arts and how that excludes um, working class people or, or people from migrant backgrounds or, um, or people with disability and so on. Um, yeah, and, and it doesn't help that already art can be quite an elitist kind of um, 
area of work and then and then it just excludes people who are too poor to do it, too poor to do heaps of volunteer work basically for these um, top-notch institutions. Um, and, yeah, I also talked about how at the moment a lot of the millennial and Gen Z um, generations generally there's this new insecure worker class um, and mm. it kind of doesn't necessarily matter whether you're tertiary educated or not. Like I, I have like almost a decade of tertiary education, but I still um, have to access like occasionally on welfare and stuff because I just don't, don't get enough income from, from being an artist. Um, and yeah, there's a term for that's called the precariat. So it's like this precarious class. Mm. Um, yeah, and I also talked a little bit, like, what we were talking about before, like, associations and how, um, they're really great and they definitely perform a function and I don't want associations such as NAVA or the Australian Ceramics Association or whichever it is to not exist, but I think they could potentially work with unions or with a new union or an existing union, um, to just help artists right at the bottom who are just whether it be in teaching or whether it be as artists, they're just being ripped off. Mm. So, um, yeah. yeah. I think it's really important to centralise class when we're having these discussions because, yeah, as I was discussing earlier today, there seems to be a big disparity of, like, you know, people who are just really struggling and then some people who can afford to do art just because they – uh, may have inherited generational wealth or are mm. quite comfortable financially. So, yeah, we really need to think about both sides of those spectrums. Um, yeah. And I was reading somewhere as well that uh, there's approximately seven, over 700,000 hours of volunteer work uh, in the arts industry every year. And really, mm. it would fall apart without that unpaid labour. So, yeah. Yeah, we really need to work on, you know, getting each other paid and especially for those who may not have the same privilege as some others. Yeah, um, and there's um, definitely also kind of this, like, gratitude pay, you know, like um, the cultural capital, if I can put this on my CV, and I'm just gracious yeah. for even this voluntary position, like, and that can be quite toxic. Yeah, the term... Yeah. Um, precariats made me see, made me feel very seen. So yeah. yep. <laughs> um, So my last question today is what do you think it would take to unionise in the arts and do you have any words of support for those artists and art workers out there who are really struggling to advocate for themselves at the moment and are just kind of a bit tired, maybe mm. a bit broke and feeling yeah. a bit demoralised at the moment? Um, was something, yeah, I forgot to address in the last question was um, the government has um, a call out for their national cultural policy at the moment and one of those pillars that you mentioned is the centrality of the artist and the artist's worker and even putting that into words is quite important. And obviously we all know like Labor has this history and association with unions so um, probably like the first thing I would do is expressing how perhaps artists need, for them to be recognised as workers, they need um, maybe like an award, like Narva's as well talking about needing an award. But if there is an award, do we need a union to kind of help enforce that? Um, 
also like telling NAVA themselves. I, I think they may have a um, survey at the moment too, but otherwise just contacting them and just telling them um, perhaps would a union help me? Um, yeah, seeing... I, I know like through like being an Australian Ceramics Association, they're also like another, they're not a union, but they've been quite supportive in... Um, helping me write about how we need a union. Mm, <laughs> um, so if you have, if you're an artist, like seeing what your peak body association is and expressing to them what, as a worker, what you think um, they need is also what you need. Um, Trades Hall in Victoria also have um, several outreach centres, like the Young Workers Centre, the Women's Centre, the Migrant Workers Centre, and they all provide free legal advice. Um, for workers um, who don't, say if you don't have a union that covers you. Um, yeah, and I suppose just like trying to reach out in your industry, like for me through like speaking out about this, um, I've found other like-minded people and for a long time it felt like it was just me. But then, you know, mm. in the last two weeks I've been to two conferences where we're all talking about how we need a union. Um, I guess it's like you sort of learn in organising this like, anger hope action and like I often think of myself getting stuck in the anger phase and I think all of us are stuck in the anger phase but we need hope that there that we can come together to change things and then we need to actually act on it so um yeah and there are other unions like one of the conferences um Musicians Australia which is powered by um the Media Entertainment Arts Alliance they're just like a small union to help um gigging musicians um they said how they did it Game Workers Union, that's a new union. They're powered by Professionals Australia. And then there's RAFWU. They're also potentially reaching out to existing unions and telling them. But, yeah, I guess I've got to, I don't have an answer for that question because I am still working out um, the best way to yeah. <laughs> address this problem with the lack of our unionisation. But I think just, yeah, raising the issues, directly telling the government um the current government unlike the last one is actually listening doesn't mean that you know they'll fix the problem but at least they're listening yeah that's right um, and i think initially i didn't even have the language to talk about what i was experiencing in the arts industry so you know having hope and motivation and um mm. you know to learn more about these issues and how to advocate for ourselves is really important I think when we're trying to um you know maybe get an award rate yeah <laughs> you know, the, the the demands are not particularly high at the moment but no we just want some <laughs> like absolute minimum standards um and I mean if people are like really into this like I was like that I highly recommend um Trade Poll do this Union Summer and Union Winter program, um, which is about organising. Um, yeah. And, and it's paid as well. So. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we will have yeah. the links to all of those in the show notes. Uh, yes. Thank you so much for contributing your time and labour today. Oh, and no. <laughs> I hope you have a wonderful morning. Okay, thanks so much. Thank you. And we just heard from Madeline Thornton-Smith, who has a strong interest in labor issues, particularly in relation to the visual arts and ceramics industry, and who joined us uh, to discuss her work on art and labor and the renewed national cultural policy and unionizing in the creative sector. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. 
And now we will go to a song by Tia Costello. It is called Say It To My Face. Hope you had a good day. Wipe that smile off your face. What would your mother say? Is she proud that you act this way? You're listening to 3CR Breakfast Summer Programming. During the year, we heard from so many incredible voices. Tune in to hear our top picks from 2022. Join us on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, streaming at 3cr.org.au or via the Community Radio app. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast Summer Programming and we're going into another track now. This one is Gold Energy by Electric Fields. And
Listening to 3CR 855 AM, and we just heard a wonderful track called Gold Energy by Electric Fields. Hi, I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and we're joined now by comics journalist and cartoonist Sam Woolman to speak about his powerhouse comic Our Members Be Unlimited which is a beautifully illustrated narrative of workers and their unions that inspires hope, solidarity and radical action and Our Members Be Unlimited is published by Scribe and is now onto a second printing after selling out since its original publication in late May this year so congratulations Sam and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Sorry about my morning voice. I'm no. kind of rubbing my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> no, you sound fine. Um, I, it is just really exciting to be talking about this, and it's it's so great that it's gone into reprint because I'm sure there have been plenty of people who've been keen to get a copy and haven't been able to yet. Um, so I thought we could start off by hearing a bit about your own journey into union organizing and how that's shaped you. Yeah, um, I guess. I was a member of a union, um, like when I was in warehousing and then disability work when I was younger, but like a very passive member, didn't really understand the orientation that it's like a way to democratise your workplace and that you have to do a bunch of that yourself. I kind of like saw it as a Netflix subscription or something like that, but eventually started learning about the history of it and stepping up a bit more and got elected as a delegate at a call centre, um, did some activism there with my workmates and then eventually went on to become a, an official and a organiser with um, United Workers Union, which I did until on and off, kind of till like last year, really. But eventually I was like, these, these drawings take a long time to draw. And I, I think I, I'm probably better at drawing than I was at organising. So ended up just throwing my hat into being a full-time artist now. Um, but definitely did 
yeah, changed me through all of that. Like, just built my confidence a lot more. And just because you're just talking to regular ass people, like where they're at and about what's going on in their situation, like the very grounding um, struggle. And it, I think it's just like a good way to sort of see the best in people, which I think made me a bit more optimistic in general. And just like, I'm kind of obsessed with this idea of organic leftists and just mm-hmm. people that don't necessarily see themselves as, you know, lefty or progressive or whatever, but have those values and just sort of seeing the ways that people ha- have each other's backs in informal ways, like just a heartening thing to see all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm I'm already like going into into podcast zone now, but I was thinking about listening to the Trillbillies the other day and like how people show. Um, they were talking about how people show um, who they really are during a crisis, and that kind of raises these opportunities to actually meet people where they're at when when people are turning inwards towards their communities, and you hadn't had the opportunity to see them behave in that way before. Um, and so I was really struck by how deeply hopeful this work is and was wondering if you could speak to the importance of radical hope as a key part of organizing in solidarity and how that sort of threads through your work. Yeah, that, I feel like like we, you kind of have to be a little bit hopeful, even if you're not self-aware of it. I think just by stepping into doing some organizing work or campaigning or activism or whatever, it is inherently hopeful act because you probably wouldn't you wouldn't bother if you didn't have a little bit of hope in in people and in the situation like even when you're on the back foot I think and it's just kind of like it's it's not as abstract especially in the labor movement like a lot of organizing can seem abstract and like really situated in the future and um, I think union organizing is a little bit different because yeah, it's very much like rooted in the here and now. So I don't know. I feel I feel like also just I just try to stop getting self indulgent. Like I compartmentalize stuff. If I'm freaking out about the future or mm. where things are headed, I'm just like, well, the future's not just one place. Like there's so many people in different places and stuff. Like I just break it up into little bits so it's easier to comprehend and like push for stuff. But and yeah, people have. I think just done that forever. Like all, all the cool stuff that people have achieved, a lot of it's happened when conditions were way worse than they are now. So I just try not to wring my hands too much because yeah, people have done very cool stuff like with a lot less than we have. Yeah, totally. And I mean, it it does sort of come down to to believing. Um believing that we can work together and that's how we we naturally work together as like we're cooperative beings right um and like trusting and believing in our power to organize and come together and create these massive changes i think is so important um i'm wondering which yeah we already do do that in our workplace yeah that's what the boss relies like they want us to cooperate and get along so as to carry out our work Mm -hmm. so it's that old meme of like yeah, we're we're all a team, and then the group unionizes, and the boss is like, "Not like that, though." But <laughs> like the cooperation is there. Like we all, all the networks of care that we all carry out, even after work, to have each other's backs and to survive and stuff. Like, yeah, like the trillbillies, like that image. Like, how do we just bump that up and make it a bit more concrete? That's the question, I guess. 
Yeah, 100%. I mean, like, yeah, I, I was going to ask you which part of the comic you're closest to or do you love the most. And something that I really loved in the comic, I mean, the artwork is beautiful and so, like, considered and intentional. And I love the color palettes. And I I just really also love the way that you explore um, what solidarity looks like in practice, whether it's somebody saying, hey, I'll cover your shift or, um, you know, just these really simple things that I thought was like so beautiful and relatable but yeah what 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 was the what's the the closest to your heart in this book i, I know it's hard to pick probably uh thanks for that I, I yeah i like those bits like that like i feel like that's like a very ken loach kind of thing he's always just showing these little gestures that you might not even notice that happens between people throughout every day but i think my my favorite is a bit of a mean a bit like probably the critique and that the limitations chapter where I kind of sink the boot in mm-hmm. to the contemporary state of unions, that was like therapy for me a little bit because I am quite frustrated like at our reluctance to fight and some other aspects like the bureaucratization and just NGOization of class struggle. It annoys me. So that, that chapter was fun. And it was also just fun because it's kind of the most camp and conversational one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, there's like a, a bit in that chapter where it talks about how we might have to fight union leadership as much as we fight the bosses. Mm-hmm. And that, that was very cathartic to draw. But I was like, oh, I hope this doesn't really piss off the unions. Yeah, but I mean, like, I think the message in there was also like, sometimes you have to piss off the unions, right? Like, you have <laughs> yeah. to, um, because, you know, it's not about sort of scrapping these modes of organizing, but making sure that they actually run you know, in the spirit that, that they're intended. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Too yeah. much change the rules, not, not enough break the rules. Exactly. Like, when the union movement has been at low points like this in Australian history, at least, like it's only ever gotten out of them by like mass illegal strikes and mm-hmm. leaders getting locked up and stuff. And it's just very hard to imagine that from where we sit. But I mean, it's still possible. Yeah, what is this protected industrial action? Pa, right? Like we should, <laughs> we should be yeah. imagining more than that. Yeah, exactly. We really hemmed ourselves in by getting the Labor Party to protect very limited types of industrial action. Patting mm. ourselves on the back. Oh, we have this very narrow margin of ways that we're legally protected strike, and now every other method. Like you, as a union, you can get fined a million bucks, and as an individual, you can get fined. Like, I think it's eighteen thousand dollars just Jeez. even if you stop work for two minutes. So yeah, yeah something's got to give with the right to strike. That's the, the biggest thing. Yeah, absolutely, and it totally like falls into this broader landscape of liberal respectability politics around like trying yeah. to push for the most marginal change. Um, yeah, get a yeah. seat at the table, and yeah, the professionalization does my head in. Yeah, absolutely. What's uh, the, the? There's like an old line like the unity of the of the tiger and the bug happens in the belly of the tiger. (laughs) We can't sit at the table and be equal to the bosses. Like we have to get rid of the table really. Yeah, totally. Um, And I think like my, my second last question for you is I was hoping to hear about how you locate the role of art in revolutionary organizing, because you've done so much excellent work in support of active struggle, including by local and international unions. And you've also done some awesome work for 3CR as well. So thank you from us. Oh, I love 3CR. <laughs> My favorite station. Um, 
I don't know. I don't really have like any illusions that like art can play a massive role in like it can't supplant actual organizing, but I think mm-hmm. it can click into it and help communicate some of the core ideas of an effort and, and kind of just, yeah, like we were saying before, make it a little bit less abstract because politics is this weird, dry, floating, invisible thing sometimes and it's hard to get a grasp of. Like, you know, I don't know why humans are so obsessed with our vision, but like having tangible, visible things just helps us like be like, okay, this is a thing and something I can be proud of and get involved in and, I don't know, stick on my wall or my in my workplace or whatever, just kind of gives it a little bit more, makes it seem a little bit more real. Yeah. When we're all like very alienated and it's just a way to be like, almost celebrate an effort or, or just like communicate the basic premise of something that people are trying to do in a way that is really digestible and people can remember and stuff. Yeah, of course. I mean, like, um, I think... It is. It just comes through so strongly in in this book, and I'm so excited for more and more people to be able to access it. Um, we're gonna have to wrap up in a sec, but just before we go, where can people grab a copy of our members be unlimited and keep up to date oh. with your work? <laughs> Thank you. This is full Danos direct. I love it. Thank <laughs> you. Um, I think it's come. It's it's the reprint. It just got to the warehouse yesterday. I think so. Maybe on the weekend it'll be in bookstores. Hopefully, I'm not. Exactly sure, but very soon. Otherwise, I think the scribe, mm-hmm. scribe publications on their website, you can get a copy. Um, yeah, it should be around from here on. It's been a bit frustrating that it came out and then just hasn't existed. <laughs> so it's cool that it's back in shops soon. Yeah, well, I'm very excited for my hard copy to arrive. Sam, thanks so much for joining us this morning and all the best with um, with your Sydney launch. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If anyone wants to come next Friday, if it happens to be any Sydney listeners. But yeah, thanks for what you do as well. Yeah, no worries. Have a great day. All right. You too. Take care. And that was Sam Woolman, comics journalist and cartoonist who joined us to speak about his powerhouse comic, Our Members Be Unlimited. And now we are going to go into another track. And this one is by 3CR resident local and favourite, Kutcher Edwards, and this is from his album Circling Time, and it's called We Sing. I hear a baby crying in the night Whispers in the wind Echoes calling out your name Rock to its core Sounds we cannot ignore Now's the time to reignite the flame It's time for us to hear Beyond the new frontier Waking to a brighter dawn Blessed by the sun United as one When a new child is born We sing for love 
Yeah. 
And just then you heard Kutcher Edwards, a song from his album Circling Time, and that was called We Sing. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast Summer Programming on 3CR Community Radio, featuring highlights from across the year with interviews on labour issues and workers' rights. Stay tuned to 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, and streaming at 3cr.org.au or via the Community Radio app. Now we are joined by 3CR returnee Matt Kunkel, who is the CEO of the Migrant Workers Centre. And he joins us today to speak on the centre's new report, Waiting to be Seen, Problems of Australia's Visa Processing Delays, which shows Australia's migration system has denied tens of thousands of people the stability and certainty to build their lives. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Matt. Oh, thanks for having me. No, of course. Thanks for coming back. Yeah, <laughs> um, always for 3CR. No, thank you. So I think, firstly, I know visas can be confusing. I know they always have been for me. Would you mind maybe just starting off with what a visa is and the different types of visas that are common in Australia? A visa basically is a permission slip of sorts, uh, a permit to be in the country. And what it does is it allows you to get through customs and immigration. And then it also, though, and most powerfully has a lot of, in many cases, restrictions on people, what you can do while you're here. So whether you can work, whether you can study, um, how long you can be here, uh, Indeed, whether you're allowed to leave and come back again, those sorts of things. So there's lots of different types of visas, and you know there are some that people would be very familiar with, but there are some really niche ones as well. Um, you know, one of the one of the big ones that everybody would know is about international students. That's a really really common one in in Australia. Mm-hmm. That visa, for example, allows um, people to come into into the country but it puts restrictions on their ability to work. So they can only work 40 hours per fortnight uh, when the class is on, but they can work more than that when when class is not on. So all of that's actually in the visa that they receive. The other one that people might not know is that um, one of the biggest categories of temporary visa holders in Australia are actually people from New Zealand, who uh, many of whom have been here for, you know, many, many years, maybe even 20 years or so, but still don't have the right to permanently stay in Australia. So that's another really big category. And as we know, there are all sorts of other visas like, you know, refugee visas or you know, protection visas and visitor visas for tourists and, and indeed bridging visas, which is the, um, the big topic of this report. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really illuminating because I didn't know about the uh, New Zealand visa thing. That's really interesting. Um, especially from the report that it shows that there's been an increase in wait time for visas, mainly temporary visas being processed way faster by the Department of Home Affairs than permanent visas. Could you maybe explain what is causing these delays and how it's actually contributing, you know, as you've said, to the migrant worker exploitation in Australia? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but um, what our report shows is that pretty much all of the temporary forms of visa are being processed more quickly than um, the permanent forms. Uh, And what we've had in the last decade or more is a distortion of our system towards temporary types of migration rather than permanent types of migration. So we hear a lot about it in the the news about how business want more temporary migrants to come back. Um, Well, we say that there's actually some really serious issues there. So people who are in the country or even want to stay and find that very narrow pathway to a permanent residency visa 
are being asked to wait, in some cases, more than three years to actually secure that visa, um, which means that there's a lot of people out there, you know, more than a million people out there on a temporary form of visa, uh, which doesn't provide them the certainty to start building their lives. Uh, a previous report we, we put out last year showed that around two out of every three migrant workers who were on a temporary form of visa uh, were being underpaid or otherwise exploited in the workplace. So... Um, there's a really clear link between these temporary visas uh, and people's likelihood to have a difficult time. And part of that is because many people on temporary visas are actually sponsored by their boss. So their boss not only has the power over what they're being paid, but over their ability to stay in the country. So it makes it really tough um, to, to kind of stand up and demand your rights when um, you might be putting at risk maybe five, ten years of, of trying to find a permanent visa. That's such a difficult spot to be in and know that, yeah, if you were to speak up and get support, you lose all the time and effort and money and moving away from your family and all your support networks. That's unbelievably challenging. And I know that, you know, that's a lot of the work that you guys do as well. Um, In terms of the visa protests that were held last week, we saw that 887 visa holders held protests across Australia. Uh, Why were these protests occurring and what does it mean for migrant workers? Oh yeah, sure. So the 887, so all the visas have numbers and 887 visa is one of those numbers. So um, it's a number, it's it's a visa class that allows people to stay in the country permanently. So it's a really, like, it's a it's a visa that should be relatively straightforward to approve, but what we've got are people who have been living in regional areas for the two years, living and working in regional areas for two years, who have applied for this, uh, I guess, subsequent visa that allows them to stay in the country permanently. Um, but what we've got is those people are out there languishing on visa, uh, bridging visas for, for, you know, in our in our report, in some cases, 25 months. So you can imagine, you know, Put working for two years, then you put your application in for a permanent visa. You're on this bridging visa with no certainty for two years. Uh, it's 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 really, um, I think, frustrating. And the other part of it is these people are in limbo. They they can't you know they can't buy a house without paying more restrictive um, taxes to the government. They can't get child childcare subsidy for their kids. Their um, their elder kids can't go to university without paying international student fees. Um, try getting a rental uh, a rental house when you tell the landlord that you've only got a bridging visa and you might have to you know might have to leave. So we've got all of these problems, and, and I think the frustration has built in the community of eight eight seven visa holders, and they've organised collectively. They're you know they've got big WhatsApp groups and Telegram groups and the whole thing, um, and they've managed to channel their anger and frustration at these uh, unjustifiably long waiting times into action, and they're starting to you know coordinate activity and protests around the country. That's pretty incredible. Um, I know that, you know, the power of advocacy, but being able to know that, yeah, maybe there are restrictions to why we're here and what we can do. And there's a lot of barriers, but we're going to come together and uh, protest that this is actually not good enough. It's incredible to see. It's huge and, and really courageous too, because you can imagine, you know, the Department of Home Affairs and the, you know, the, the, the government more broadly, you know, if you there's this idea that if you're a migrant migrant worker or you come to this country, you need to be really well behaved, you need to be the perfect migrant. Yeah. Um, but you know, we, what we're seeing here is that our system is just so very broken 
um, that people are so frustrated and they're making demands that they no longer want to have their lives tracked on these bridging visas. They want certainty and they want the security to build their lives like the rest of us in this country. Absolutely. And just knowing that a lot of the people that are on temporary visas end up, I think last time we spoke about how it's almost being permanently temporary. Yeah, Um, well, that's right. Some people have been here for more than a decade and still haven't found a pathway or still haven't found that that permanent residency visa. And what we saw at the Jobs Summit was a lot of discussion around putting permanent migration back into the centre of the migration system. And we would really welcome that because what we've seen, you know, over the last 10, 15 years is an explosion, really, of this reliance on temporary forms of, you know, visas that, yeah, as you said, you know, people on a treadmill or or on a merry-go-round jumping from one temporary visa to another trying to find that really slim pathway to get that visa that they can actually stay here for the long term. And, you know, as as I said at the top, the big thing about the, the waiting times is the Department of Home Affairs seems to be prioritising those applications that are for these temporary forms of visa. So, you know, you can get a student visa in a couple of months um, or you can get an employer-sponsored visa in, you know, six to nine months. Um, but if you're trying to get that permit, you're already here, you're already, um, you know, in the community and trying to build your life and you just want that security, you're waiting for two or maybe three years to get that security and you're, all the time you're on this bridging visa. Yeah, I think one thing that really stood out to me in the report was that just in general, the number of people all on bridging visas has increased sixfold. So in 2021, it was sitting at 333,357 people, um, which includes a lot of people on a bridging visa. Many of them are seeking asylum. I know, you know, we've spoken about why it's definitely a problem. But could you speak more about specifically the bridging visa and why it's a problem that so many people are waiting and what recommendations you have to maybe address this hike? Yeah, I mean, look, the last two years have been really unique, obviously, with COVID. And we've seen, um, you know, a 50% increase in bridging visas just in 2020 alone. And part of this was many people who were in the country and might have been sponsored by their employer lost their job because there was no support for them. There was no job seeker, there was no job keeper, right? So um, what those people did, many of them, was to find another visa to make sure they could keep their settlement um, plan alive. They might have become an international student or they might have sought uh, a regional visa that has this really long waiting time. And a bridging visa really is just... If you're on a visa uh, and you make an application for a new visa, um, while the department comes to look at your substantive visa, we call it, or they call it, um, you're on this bridging visa which has certain certain restrictions. So um, during COVID, this number really ballooned um, because people were having to kind of shift from one temporary form of um, visa to another. But the other part of it too is that the government and the department just need more people to process visas. um, A report shows that as the number of people uh, applying for visas has increased cuts to the Department of Home Affairs and the staffing of the public service show that there's just fewer people processing these onshore visa applications. So um, what we say is that they should, you know, first and foremost, they should increase the proportion of permanent visas within the migration system. That would mean that there's less churn in the public sector and the department. You know, people aren't, you know, needlessly kind of applying for multiple visas when one would be enough. 
Um, and and like the first thing they could do, and I know they have started to do this, is to allocate increased resources and employees to processing to to clear this backlog of um, onshore visa applications that they've um, that they've inherited from the last government. Um, but really, what we're saying is we should be pegging this. We should we should be pegging the system to a um, to benchmarks that people shouldn't be waiting more than say six months for a visa. Um, you know, other countries like Canada have these benchmarking processes where, you know, they uh, migrants have a right to have their visas um, heard and, and dealt with in a certain time. Uh, and more and moreover, people need more migrants need more understanding from the department about how their uh, their visas are being treated. It's really hard, you know, like you put your application and you just wait. There's no, you know, you don't. You know, you're on the phone, it's like you're number five in the queue or whatever. Like, there's nothing like that. You just put it in and you wait. And you one day, if you're lucky enough, you you get it approved. But what you've got over your head the entire time is one day it might not be approved and you might have to pack your home up and um, and move somewhere else. So more, more transparency would be really important there. And what we also want uh, and we've been calling for for a long time is more justice and compensation for migrant workers who are um, mistreated in the workplace. Uh, that's really key for us because we know um, that our visa system brews the circumstances where unscrupulous bosses can, can really drive um, migrant workers uh, into some really difficult situations in the workplace. And the last thing I'd say is around bridging visas is there's this particular type of bridging visa called bridging visa E, and that's a bridging visa that many people who have applied for asylum on are in this country. Uh, they hold that visa. They're not allowed to work. So we've got these people out there who are, you know, fleeing, are fleeing really difficult places, uh, you know, looking for security and safety uh, from us, which is what we owe them. And we cruelly deny them the ability to get proper support, um, you know, proper income support. But also we cruelly deny them the ability to even go out and support themselves and their families by um, finding employment. So we're calling on some less restriction, uh, less restrictive um, measures around bridging visas and providing the, the right to work to more people in this country. Yeah, those are some really incredibly important recommendations that you've provided in the report uh, to the department. But uh, can we also uh, read the report? Could you tell us how to do that or how to get involved in the work? Yeah, sure thing. Um, you, best, best way to get in touch with us is to head over to our website, www.migrantworkers.org.au. You can read the report online there. And if you're interested in getting more involved uh, in any of the work we do, or indeed if you're interested in getting involved in the campaign um, to fight fair um, visa processing time, uh, you can sign up to volunteer there and we can hook you up with the right people. Okay, amazing. We'll also link that in our show notes. But thanks so much, Matt, for coming on to Thursday Breakfast. Thanks very much. See you next time. Bye. You've just heard from Matt Kunkel, who's the CEO of Migrant Workers Centre, and he spoke to us about the new report, Waiting to be Seen, Problems of Australia's Visa Processing Delays. And now I think we might go to a track. This is Closer by Nairi from her new album, Three. In the
20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside. I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, a lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app or listen live each Monday at midday. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. The track that you just heard was off Nairi's new album, and that was Closer. And now we will be hearing from Emma Gollidge, who is the director of Kingsford Legal Centre in UNSW. She joins us today to speak about how leading community legal centres have welcomed the passing of the government's anti-discrimination and human rights legislation amendment bill, which is the Respect at Work. And the bill gives legislative effect to key Respect at Work recommendations. Hi, Emma. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thanks for your time. Absolutely. Anytime. So... I think with the community legal centres, they have welcomed such an amazing bill amendment that has been passed, which is called Respect at Work. Could you tell us more about this bill and why it is so important? Yeah, I mean, this bill is about 40 years in the making, so we're thrilled to see it pass Parliament this week. What this bill does is really change the way Australian law deals with sexual harassment. Community legal centres have really been on the front line for 40 years, helping people who've experienced sexual harassment enforce their rights and what's become evident over time is that our laws did not really prevent sexual harassment and did not adequately support people who who experience sexual harassment and I think in the past five years particularly with the Me Too movement and a wider conversation which the Respect at Work report really documented we're having a conversation about how we can change our responses to sexual harassment so people are safe at work And really, the legislation here provides the legal framework to give people increased legal protection and change the way we approach sexual harassment to reduce harm. I think one of the most important recommendations, I mean, they're all important, but I think the one that really stood out to me, and I know it's central to the bill, is it's a call on employers to take reasonable and proportionate measures to eliminate unlawful sex discrimination. And I know this has been going on for a while, but what does this actually look like in practice? It's a real game changer because at the moment, under the old law, basically it really relied on really brave individuals taking a case and saying something happened to me and it was not okay. And you can imagine that's a huge burden on an individual um, to, to carry that weight, but also there's huge risks involved with people doing that. And really what the Sex Discrimination Commissioner's report showed was that approach didn't work because sexual harassment is widespread in Australia about one in three people have experienced sexual harassment and also people experience it for very long periods of time. So we're talking about incidences that go over a really long time. And many people say that they actually think their workplace could be doing more. So what the positive duty does is it removes that burden on an individual 
to do something after the harm has happened to think about how we can all work in workplaces and create safe environments. And so a positive duty is going to be a huge game changer in terms of thinking about how our workplaces can think about risk, can um, be alive to the issues in the workplace. We don't have a situation, we won't be able to have a situation where the employer just says, I think everything's fine, I'm not going to do everything. They're going to have to take active steps to actually find out. And really part of that is thinking about gender equality in the workplace because we know sexual harassment occurs and unsafe situations happen predominantly for women in workplaces that are not um, that do not have gender equity as well. Absolutely. It sounds like such an important step towards ongoing accountability and that it's not just left on one person to be courageous. Um, and I think with how important it is to keep the bill uh Uphold, upholding these rights, uh, there is a review that is also involved. Can you tell us more about what the importance of a statutory review is of the bill? Yeah, community legal centres felt really strongly that we just can't put um, create new laws and not come back to them and think about whether they're working or not. And so the Sex Discrimination Act, when it happened in the early 80s, was a huge moment for Australia. But we really haven't gone back and thought about, well, was that achieving its aims? You know, it's taken over 40 years for us to significantly kind of, um, uh, you know, legislate changes to that act. So a statutory review is really important because this positive duty is a really big change. The Human Rights Commission is going to be monitoring what's happening with that. And we want to make sure that the Human Rights Commission is properly resourced to be able to do that. And so we just don't want to kind of create law and not come back and think about, is it actually helping people? We really want to be reducing the harm, reducing the incidence of sexual harassment and improving standards and practices in workplaces. And so I think it's just good practice not to have a set and forget um, kind of way of dealing with law reform, because if we don't keep looking at it, we know that harm continues. Yeah, and I think also following on from harm... um You've stated in the media release that, you know, the issues of costs in human rights matters is a key access to justice for so many clients. And even the strongest discrimination cases can often lose in court due to technical points. How do you think that cost creates a barrier to seeking justice? And how will the bill actually support the minimisation of these barriers? Well, the person with the deepest pocket shouldn't win the case, you know, and especially when it's someone, an individual worker, bringing an action against an employer, the resources are really, you know, tipped in the employer's favour. And so costs become really important in terms of thinking about how people can enforce their rights. And anyone who's had a legal problem knows that, unfortunately, lawyers are really expensive and going to court is really expensive. So that can be really overwhelming for someone who's just in a workplace who's had harm done to them you may not be able to work effectively in their chosen field. To have what we call a cost risk is really a huge impediment to people enforcing their rights. What that essentially means is that if you're not, if you don't win your case, it could be that you have to pay all the costs in the matter, which can be hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, what Respect at Work did was start a conversation about how we can increase access to justice and reduce cost risk. Where we've landed in terms of the government and the bill is the government has recognised that the cost risk is really real and that it's different for different people in different contexts. And so what we're going to be doing and working with the government is thinking about how we can increase access to justice by looking at cost. And so that's going to be a separate process and consultation. And that's really welcomed by community legal centres because cost barriers for our clients is a really real issue. 
And we need these laws to be real for people. We want people to be enforcing their rights and to do it in a way that doesn't kind of put their future financial, you know, position in, in jeopardy or risk, you know. So we need people to be able to feel that they can enforce their rights and they're not putting their financial future at risk. Absolutely. And it, that is so unbelievably important because that cost should not be a barrier to seeking justice for yourself. And I think for the Respect for Work Council has also stated that the bill is a huge, huge first step, but is obviously just in uh, the beginning in terms of reforming federal anti-discrimination laws to operate more consistently and reflect the intersectional nature of discrimination. What does, um, in your opinion, intersectional advocacy and legislation look like in practice? Well, I mean, we're all complex human beings and it's, you know, very um, uncommon just to experience one type of discrimination. So Respect at Work was really clear that if you experience sexual harassment, you are more likely also to experience at the same time race discrimination or disability discrimination or other forms of discrimination. So we really can't have a conversation about sex discrimination and sexual harassment without thinking about that happens to a person who's got lots of complex identities. Now, at the moment, the changes to the bill are really focused on sex discrimination and sexual harassment. So when we talk about intersectional experience, we're really saying we also need to think about, you know, how we deal with race discrimination, how we deal with other types of discrimination. And the other part of it is that this is the main way Australia protects human rights. We don't have a Human Rights Act in Australia, so it is really important that we keep revisiting discrimination law to make it easy to use, to make it effective in reducing discrimination and to make it accessible to people. So I'm really heartened, though, that we're having this conversation. We've moved so far in the area of sexual harassment in a relatively short amount of time, and I think there's much more cultural awareness because people have really bravely spoken up about their experiences, and I think there's real um, a sense that we need to revisit this stuff, that discrimination in all its forms is very harmful, and that we don't want to live in Australia where that proliferates, whether that's in our workplaces or in our educational institutions. So I think that's an ongoing conversation. And, you know, community legal centres always feel like there's more work to do. So we never think, OK, we've done that, we've fixed that problem. So we're really um, excited to keep thinking about, you know, what are the future areas where we can be working yeah, I feel like that's really exciting, honestly. And yeah, as you said, legal centres always, there is always more work to do. But I think from what I'm hearing, there may, like a really key theme is like the information legislation needs to be accessible and practical and intersectional. And lastly, do you have anything else that you'd like to bring attention to or really highlight or something that you wish people knew about the bill? Well, I just think that, you know, for a lot of people listening today, we've had a lot of conversations about sexual harassment and a lot of people will have experienced sexual harassment and it might have raised issues for them or they might be thinking about experiences that they're currently having. There are a lot of free legal services around willing to help, you know, and to listen to your story and just give you your options. There's a really great um, portal that the Human Rights Commission has developed. So if you Google Respect at Work, there's legal information there. And so... The two things I would say is change is coming and so thank you to everyone who's spoken up and who's having those conversations in their workplaces who's really also called out unacceptable behaviour because that's the other part of it that we all need to speak up. But also that, you know, these conversations are very distressing and so if people feel like they want some confidential support or help, have a look at the Respect at Work portal because there's a lot of free help available. Amazing. Thank you so much. We'll also put that in our show notes. But hope you have a really wonderful day, Emma. Thanks for your time. Thank you. 
You've just heard from Ella Gullidge, who is the director of Kingsford Legal Centre at UNSW. She joins us today to speak about how community legal centres have welcomed the Respect at Work Bill, and they spoke about the legislative effect of key Respect at Work recommendations, including the creation of positive duty, which makes employers take reasonable and proportionate measures to eliminate unlawful sex discrimination. That's all we've got time for on today's Thursday Breakfast Summer Programming on 3CR Community Radio. Today's summer special featured a selection of interviews from across 2022 with a focus on labour issues and workers' rights. Stay tuned to 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, and streaming at 3cr.org.au or via the Community Radio app. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.